White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms for contemporary art. Hello, my name is Rena O, oh, and I am a guest host for White Hot Magazine Podcasts, one of the leading platforms bringing lively discussions, innovative, fine artists, thought leaders, and active creatives, which is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Here in the art world, I am delighted to interview Peter Rosen, who's one of the most critically acclaimed documentary storytellers of the 20th and 21st centuries. He is currently in the midst of preparing the premiere of the latest work, Larry Rivers, the bad boy of the art world. Today, I am sitting down with Peter, along with a commentator who's a fellow actor and composer with a rich history of a family of art collectors. Peter Rosen has produced and directed over 100 full-length films and television programs, which have been distributed worldwide and have won awards at all the major film festivals. He has worked directly with some of the most important figures in the arts, such as Leonard Bernstein, Yo-Yo Ma, Beverly Sills, Cheryl Milnes, Stephen Soltheim, Alexander Gudunov, Midori, Martha Graham, Placido Domingo, Van Clearburn, Claudio Arau, Byron Janis, Ian Pei, and Garrison Keller. The film, Who Gets to Call It Art? A story about Henry Gallitzer, the curator at the Met responsible for single-handedly changing America's contemporary art spectrum, is one of the most critically acclaimed documentaries. Henry discovered artists such as Jasper Johns, John Chamberlain, Frank Stella, Andy Warhol, amongst many others. It was ranked as the number four out of ten best films by Time magazine during the year of its release. I am honored to have had the opportunity to interview one of the most unique cinematic storytelling pioneers in American cinema. We were fortunate enough to have a great host, Fritz Michel, who's an accomplished composer and actor, and grandfather, Jules Bach was one of the greatest art collectors of masterpieces, and collection included works by Goya, Rembrandt, Botticelli, Filippo Lippi, and many more that are found today at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Peter Rosen's film can be found on Vimeo, and I highly recommend watching Who Gets to Call It Art, First Person Singular, I Am Pei, Caruso, God's Fiddler, amongst many others that are my favorites. With a bachelor's degree in architecture and an MFA from Yale, Rosen's colorful body of work is filled with stories of subjects that are captured uniquely in every documentary. Peter is furthermore a judge for the Director Guild Awards and the Emmys. I am looking forward to the premiere of his latest film, Larry Rivers, The Bad Boy of the Art World. So how are you today, Peter? Good. It's good to be here with you, Rita, and looking out over this beautiful skyline of northern Manhattan on a, a perfect uh, May spring day. So we're all in a very good mood. Cool. Good. You caught me while I'm in a good mood. That's Yeah, cool. that's awesome. <laughs> what about you, Fritz? I feel great. I'm glad to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you for having us and being a great host. Um, so, Peter, I would like to know what your childhood was like. 
Well, you know, I think um, I have to go back to when I was a little kid, like six or seven years old, I began to really be interested in photography because I had an aunt, my mother's sister, Maria, who, by the way, was a voluptuous woman who um, uh, had a tiny waist, large breasts, and was really beautiful with shiny red hair. And she worked at the United Nations as a photographer. She was the chief photographer for the Soviet delegation for the United Nations in the 60s when oh, I was wow. a little kid. And um, she caught so much attention that, for example, when Khrushchev and people like that would come to the UN, they would say, where's Maria, where's Maria? She was like a real character. Well, I mean, with, with her voluptuous, yeah, you know, I don't, bl plus. I don't blame them. But at any rate, um, because she was a photographer and I grew up pretty close to her, she was in our house in uh, Riverdale all the time. Um, she taught me photography at a pre pretty early age. She gave me one of those little plastic uh, Ansco cameras and I went all over the place taking pictures and the big advantage for me was because she worked at the UN and had access to the UN darkroom, which was a huge place. The United Nations turned out hundreds if not thousands of photos every day of every meeting and every dignitary. So I would take some pictures with my little camera and then she would bring back beautiful uh, 8x10 glossy prints of everything I took. So I was very, uh, you know, in the right hands there. And um, I remember one of the first things that I uh, started to do was we lived in um, a, a place that looked out over the Hudson River and you could see the uh, George Washington Bridge down the river. And I just began to take uh, photos of the George Washington Bridge. I did a whole study of that. This is when I was like maybe <clears throat> seven or eight years old. Um, and that carried through all the way through high school. As a freshman in high school, they, they saw me with cameras all the time. And they um, by then, I had graduated to a little better cameras like my, my Leicas. And um, I became, became the photo editor of the Fieldston News, our Fieldston High School newspaper, um, which actually published a, a paper every morning, Monday through Friday, which is unusual for a high school, probably even to this day. <clears throat> so that's how things started, you know, for, as, a, uh, as a real serious interest in, in uh, still photography. And you mentioned that you afterwards studied um, architecture at Cornell University. Yeah, I went to Cornell for architecture and then I got my master's at Yale in uh, graphic design. Um, and that's sort of, it wasn't really that I was um, somebody who drew well or was that interested in architecture. I don't know, my, my father thought it was a good profession. I didn't think too much about it, you know, when you're 17 years old. It's not a great idea to already choose what's, what your profession is going to be. But so, Cornell is an undergraduate architecture program, so you don't do anything else there from the time you're a freshman in college. So uh, rewinding back to selecting architecture as your major, is that something that you wanted to pursue at the time, or you just sort of picked it, you know, out of... You know, I was sort of, um, I didn't even pick it. It just sort of somehow in my family they thought that was, my father was a, a lawyer, an accountant uh, and a lawyer. Uh, my mother was just a housewife. It seemed, I guess, to them that that was a noble profession or something that you could make a good living at. Um, th I think they're happier that I, you know, was going to go into architecture as opposed to uh, 
acting or some kind of job like Fritz had. I was gonna, I was gonna say it's somewhere between being an artist and an engineer. So yeah, it's, it still right. feels a little bit safer. That's right. Yeah, it is a little bit on the arts side, but on the other hand, it's a profession where people actually make a living as opposed to being right. an artist where you don't make a living. It's or practical. an actor where you don't right. make a living. Yeah. You, you so, won't, you won't so, be but, but the thing is, uh, while I did not become an architect, I think that training was really, really important because it's, architecture isn't um, designing the facade of a building. It's, it's more like understanding programmatic uh, challenges, structure, and all the things that have to go on in your mind when you're either uh, making a painting, making a film, making a sculpture, all the uh, actual basic intrinsic things about the arts are in architectural training. Um, aside from the fact that you learn to do really hard work and work almost all night, you know, and then you're on what's called charrette, which means you gotta get your drawings up on the board to be criticized, and then secondly, the, the architecture training is um, something that I wish we had a little more of today. You got severely criticized on everything you did. The, the architecture, the architects uh, who were the teachers, um, they didn't worry about like microaggressions like students have today, you know, and students today have to be treated with kid gloves, otherwise they get upset and the teachers get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. In architecture, you just put your drawings up and the idea is a, a very severe critique. You could do the greatest work in the class and you're still going to be really pummeled and, and talked to in a rude way and they're going to say, that is fucking awful, I don't want to see that kind of work anymore, you know, and that's how architects are trained. They're beaten down uh, to nothing and uh, for some reason that's always been in almost every architecture school in America and Europe. That's how they teach architecture. So in a way, that's a very good background to have as you then, you know, go to the arts. It almost sounds real, like you're in the military. You can, yeah, you're going to deal yeah. with the real world that way and not like kids come out of school today and they're so coddled that they're not prepared for um, what, what goes on in their professions, whatever that might be. You did mention, though, that when you graduated, you designed one building in Europe. Oh yeah, that my well actually I have two claim to fames. One uh, and you know the thing about architecture is you, you it's a really noble profession and very few people actually get to be the designers or head up a firm where they're doing important uh, design work. So most students uh, end up going into other fields uh, anyway. For example, in my class at Cornell we had 60 freshmen. Uh, 20 of us graduated and out of that 20 only two or three became architects. And that's yeah. not unusual. That's pretty much the odds that exist in, in all the schools. So, um, you know, so you usually don't do architecture after school. I was lucky in only two cases. Um, right after school, I got a job with a large firm that were uh, designing the Caribe Hilton Hotel. In, in, oh, in, uh, that's a pretty Caribbean. big job. And my job was I designed all the bathroom details in the Caribe Hilton. So, so if you ever go down there um, to San Juan, you you know there's beautiful black tiled bathrooms with recessed lighting that that was my design and then during school we had a, a that's noble yeah well, we'll spend a lot of time there yeah the bathrooms and, and then we had um once one semester at cornell where you could work um out of the country and they assigned you to different uh, places some kids went to work in the peace corps um i had a job with an architect in london um who were working on the um, uh, London Airport and Heathrow, and because they because I was coming from America, they thought I was going to be some sort of special designer, 
or especially creative. So I had a note on my desk when I got there. It said, let the new American assistant uh, do this project. And it was, um, it was a uh, house for a priest attached to a church. So I spent the summer working on, on that. Um, I, think I, I think this goes way back. We're talking about you know, the 70s here. I think they sent me some photos of the thing when it was finally built, but that was about my career in architecture. That's as far as I got. So this is after you received your MFA from Yale? No, no, that's before. Uh, before. Oh, so this yeah. is right before During you, school. you yeah. ended up, yeah. you Graphic decided design. to go back and get your master's. Yeah, and then at Yale, um, you know, I was, I was um, graduating from Cornell right in the middle of all the recruitment for the Vietnam War. And almost every student in America had to figure out some way to stay out of Vietnam because the chances were very good you could be killed there. This was not like a, a minor skirmish somewhere like when we sent troops to Afghanistan or something. I cannot imagine you in Vietnam. No, I, well, I don't think many <laughs> college students went. Unfortunately, Vietnam was such a disaster that... Uh, a lot of people you went weren't, there. You weren't, weren't, you weren't there. No, 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 course, no, but a lot of people ended up there who didn't yeah. imagine that they would. Yeah. I think you're right. Because, the, you because it was a draft and you couldn't get out. You only could get out of it if you sh could show them you were mentally insane for some reason. And kids would go to the draft board and stand on their head and do all kinds of, talk gibberish and do all kinds of stuff to try to get out, but that usually didn't work. Maybe the other remember. reason was you could get what was called a 2S deferment, which means teaching. So um, graduate school obviously kept me out, and then after I got my master's, I stayed up in New Haven to teach because Yale offered almost everybody a 2S deferment, so you could stay out of Vietnam. Um, so that that's really what... Um, I think my parents got married. Mm -hmm. I think my parents got married. Yeah. In order to but the, you, you could, uh, if you were married, you wouldn't be drafted? I think that that oh, was right back then. Yeah. Well, that's prob that probably was the easiest way out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a really... Uh, uh, going to graduate school at Yale for my for graphic design was because of the Vietnam War and norm normally I would just want to go out and get a job and start to you know have a real life not stay in school so long because Cornell was a five-year program Yale graphic design was a three-year program that's like three years in college uh, that's like eight years in college it's almost like getting a PhD right. you know, years. and it's too much time to stay in school you're wasting a big part of your younger life in a fantasy world on a college campus as opposed to um, going out and getting a real job. So what was it like after you graduated? Um, did you take some time off? Did you go <clears throat> dive right into working? And No, I think, you know, uh, um, there's really no time off when you start making films. I mean, it sort of becomes what you do. And um, I, I kind of one day put down the still cameras and picked up a, an RES, which is a small 35 millimeter film camera. And, and this is while you were in school. Yeah, while I was in school, we had um, we had a pretty good program at Yale where they got some money from um, Joseph E. Levine, who was a big time movie mogul in the '60s and '70s. He made The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, Gandhi, A Bridge Too Far. He was like the Harvey Weinstein of the uh, of the '60s and '70s. Before uh, Har Harvey Weinstein, yeah, he made Two Women with Sophia Loren and got an Academy Award oh, for wow. that. Yeah. So Joe Levine, who became a friend of mine, gave a grant to Yale for filmmaking of 100,000 bucks. And in those years, there were very few young people who wanted to have anything to do with media or film. It's, you know, it's interesting. It's such a popular field now. You look at the classes at NYU and USC and UCLA. Everybody wants to go into media, you know, film and television. 
Um, in those years, there were only about two or three of us on the whole Yale campus who had any interest at all in film. So I, with one other guy, and uh, one guy who was interested in sound recording, we, we had access to that $100,000. Um, no one else seemed to want that grant. So I began to make some, uh, using that money, I began to make some short films up at Yale. Um, I have a question yeah, for you. Going yeah. back to the $100,000 in the 1960s, what yeah. would that be equivalent to today? About a million. That's yeah. a pretty decent amount yeah. of money to play with, as a Yeah. Well, I didn't. Student. I didn't have the whole thing, but I, the money was there at Yale to do whatever you wanted. In other words, we bought we bought what an Ari BL, which is a big blimped 16 millimeter camera. We bought a Nagra for the school, which is a professional sound recording. There were no gear. film schools. I guess no, there's no film school. Yale had um, a film studies program, but that was more looking at films of Kurosawa and Charlie Chaplin and writing papers on the films you saw, not actually making films. The other big advantage for me, and I guess I was lucky because um, the art school where I was doing the graphic design MFA was right next to Yale Drama School. And at the time, Yale Drama School was a really famous place. Barbara Garson, uh, Ken Brown, all kinds of people who were, who were writing important off-Broadway plays and musicals were at Yale Drama School under Bob Brustein who was the dean there, he was very famous in the theater, as Fritz yeah, would know. Of course. Um, and so I was able to um, make some uh, films at, for the Yale Drama School, like a lot of the students, like um, Meryl Streep, for example, was there. Okay. They all wanted to go out and make films, so I was the only guy who knew how to shoot. So I, I was shooting a lot of like drama, short shorts films for some of the Yale Drama School students, which uh, was really you, good training. Were you also editing these films? Yeah, then we set up we set up uh, a moviola, which is, this is before the days of, uh, you know, electronic digital editing. Right. You had a big moviola with wheels going around and a little screen, it made a lot of noise. Um, so we, we also bought, with that Joe Levine money, we bought a uh, moviola to do the editing. So going back to the moviola editing, mm -hmm. um, and you're using film strip. Did you yeah. have to cut the film? And yeah, then that's how, that's up until, up until recently, the whole history of cinema was people wow. had glue, Very splicers, easily. and scissors, and you cut pieces of film and stuck them together, and if you didn't like it, you undid the splices and tried something else, but it was all hands-on. Sounds it was very like a craft. much like creating yeah. a collage. Of, yeah, of yeah and it's much more artistic than now when you have editors and filmmakers sitting in electronic laptops um, putting stuff together, it's really not the same experience, and I don't think it results in the same type of work uh, that you had up until recently. You know, if, if, if cinema is 100 years old, 90 years of that were that we're, we're cutting and splicing pieces of film. So it's only recently that it's changed, and I don't think it's for the better. You know, a lot of films are pretty kooky, and they don't really tell a story in a clear way. Because they don't hold together so, as well. So many like crazy things are done. Things. You can do so many crazy things in the editing. It's great for promos. It's great for trailers. It's great for advertising for thirty-second ads. Some of the editing, but when you have that kind of editing on a feature film, after five or ten minutes, you know you can't. You, you lose the story thread. You don't really. I'm with you on that. Yeah, and and so the traditional editing of, we had you'd have sli uh, strips of film in bins all around a big room, like maybe thousands of strips of film, and you had to know what which one was. You had to go up to it and look at it against the light to see what shot that was. Wow. Uh, 
is there any way that you can take those strips of films and and um, make prints out of them? Because it is an, it's a possibility. You could, you know, it's like probably been done. Yeah, you could take any frame and blow it up, and you could have it on the wall and have it like a storyboard for what you're working on, which would be a good a good. We could way probably talk about yeah. that after the podcast. But I'm just getting to the point that you know, back at Yale, um, there weren't too many people making films, and you asked about how does it, how did what was my first, you know, how did I first start working? It's more like that, that you want, you put down your still camera, you start shooting film for people, and then you make your own films, and one leads to another. At Yale, I made a short film called I'm a Man about um, a black guy named John Barber who came from Africa and would wear African robes and accoutrements, and he also always carried a spear around with him. I don't know if you saw that one. It's online. No, I haven't I have seen to that. send you the link for that. And because he carried a spear around campus, one day when I was filming him, the police came up and arrested him for carrying a dangerous weapon. And he went to court. We, co we followed through in this short film, the whole trial of whether the spear was a dangerous weapon or part of his African garb. Yeah. And, and, and this is during the 60s. Too, yeah, when, this, when and the this, was, this is when um, the civil rights movement was just in its infancy. So it became a really important short that McGraw-Hill bought and was distributed to high schools and classrooms all over the country. It was really successful. Made some money as my first film. Um, I showed that to Joe Levine when the money was at Yale and he backed the next film, which was called Bright College Years, which was about the whole Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Black Panther uh, riot oh, at Yale in 1970. I need to see that film. You saw that, didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh, that's on, that's on my site. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. So Bright College Years was the first major film I made, um, and because it was backed by Joe Levine, his company, Avco Embassy Pictures, distributed that in theaters all across the country. And here I am, you know, like 21 years old with a feature film out there under the banner of a major... Dis it, it would be like today that your first film would be picked up by 20th Century Fox and put yeah. into major theaters. It sounds like you were doing pretty good. At but, 21. you know, I think that was, that, that was sort of the times and it was lucky and, I, and, you know, I'm just pointing it all out because one project leads to another. You know, I made that short and then Joe Levine backed the, backed the feature-length documentary and then I stayed in New Haven, um, got married there, had, had my first child there and taught at Yale for a while and then set up an office uh, in New York. And then afterwards, you mentioned you started making um, government films. Yeah, you know, that was the way in the, in the 70s and 80s that you could get started, which I don't think exists today. The government was called Hollywood on the Potomac. They made more films than Hollywood in Washington, D.C. because we had agencies like United States Information Agency that um, made propaganda films to show around the world about different aspects of American culture. I'm thinking about those World War II films that uh, yeah. all the great filmmakers yeah. made. Well, that, that, that was going on in Washington in the 70s and 80s, and they would publish the projects in the Commerce Business Daily. And you could get that newspaper every morning and look at the listings, like want ads. We want a filmmaker to make a film about uh, this uh, volcano in Arizona. Oh, whatever. these were job listings that you found Well, not in job listings. Film, they listed the project. Okay. And they would say, we want a production company to bid on this project. And, and back in those days, there weren't too many production companies. No, it, wasn't, it was competitive, but I was one of the companies that kept bidding on these things. And if you bid on enough of them with a lower budget, and I was just getting started, so I didn't have a lot of overhead. I didn't have to make you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on every project. So I could 
sit in a low bid. And I got a lot of really interesting projects. I think by throughout the 80s, I was working for almost every government agency, the Park Service, the Navy, uh, USIA. We made about eight films for USIA. Um, and that was not only a really good experience, but it was a way just to um, learn how to make documentaries. And they yeah. sent you all over the world. I made a film called The Global Weather Experiment, which we shot on all seven continents about wow. weather balloons and how they collected weather data all over the world. So I was, um, even though I was bringing up a young family with two young kids, um, I was traveling all the time, you know. Um, but you were also a, a breadwinner. Yeah, right. You could job. eke out. You could eke out a profit on all these government films. Um, I think we must have filmed um, almost in every state of America and in quite a few uh, other countries. Uh, we did a film about the monsoon in India. I had to go there. The monsoon didn't come, so all the crew went back to New York. And then as soon as we got back, the monsoon came, so we had to fly back to India. But I was on the flight a lot. I was in Washington so often that there was um, an Eastern Airlines shuttle that left every half hour from LaGuardia to Washington, D.C. It was like a bus, so you didn't even need to book a ticket ahead of time. I remember you just that walked shuttle. on the plane That's on the shuttle. And I was on that flight so much, every stewardess on that knew me. Hi, Peter, you're back today, you know. It was, it was like, uh, it was like it was, that was sort of my early uh, first, first 10 or 15 years of my career was, was doing that. Those are like during the times when the stewardess actually looked like those Pan Am Oh, styled, yeah. right? You know, right? Yeah. Uh, and you could smoke on the pl in the right. plane. And if you were talking to somebody, like say you had a meeting at the airport and you had to take off, the person you're talking to could come right on the plane and continue talking to you. And then the stewardess would come and say, "Oh, we got to take off now. You got to leave." And, the, and whoever you're having a meeting with would oh, leave the plane. Oh, right. They didn't have TSA and all no, those things. No, TSA. Just walk on and off the yeah. plane. Oh, Nobody cared. Were they uh, serving yeah. martinis? Yeah. It's so ridiculous today because we had <laughs> one shoe bomber once. How many years ago? Yeah. Like years. Everyone going on a flight now, millions and millions of people per week have to take their shoes off. I mean, it's the most absurd. Oh, is that where that comes from? Yeah. Yes. Because one of one incident. guy. Yeah. One incident. One incident. I and mean, it just shows how, how stupid and ridiculous, uh, you know, all these flight regulations are. I always forget to wear socks. It's yeah. It's horrible. I know. Your feet can get really dirty at the airport. You have to spray sanitizer <laughs> on your feet. <laughs> Um, you also mentioned Ber Leonard Bernstein um, several times during our meetings yeah. and how significant he was in, in the culture. Well, you know, that actually relates to what we just were talking about in terms of government films. The film on Bernstein was a, one of the USIA oh, projects. Yeah, USIA had a series called Reflections. In my assignment was we went to some very famous people um, like Samuel Elliott Morrison, the historian, um, Buckminster Fuller, the architect, um, there, uh, and the, the idea for Reflections was let your subject talk right to the camera in a close-up, and with very few outside prompts, let that person tell his or her whole life story. So with Bernstein, I knew very little about him, I knew very little about music, I wasn't a musician, I, uh, I had 12 years of piano lessons when I was a kid and I still couldn't play anything. So I'm not, <laughs> not cut out uh, for performing music. I played the clarinet in the uh, high school orchestra not very well. Although Benny Goodman once did play my, my clarinet because we had a, uh, uh, I, when I grew up in Riverdale, we lived next door to Richard Simon, who was the founder of Simon & Schuster, father of Carly Simon, Joanna Simon, and Lucy Simon, uh, uh, who were great singers. Um, 
So they always had celebrities at their home. I met Jack. We played ball with Jackie Robinson on their front lawn as kids. And one day Benny Goodman was at their house, and um, I was learning the clarinet. And somebody asked Benny Goodman to play the clarinet. He said, "I don't have my instrument here. I can't." And I raised my hand and said, "Mr. Goodman, I have one right next door." <laughs> you know. So I that brought was... it over, and Benny Goodman played my clarinet. That was the, made that clarinet famous in my high school. But other than piano lessons and playing the clarinet, I wasn't a musician. And when I met Bernstein, um, it was kind of a steep learning curve about learning what a conductor, what a composer is all about. And that was one of the first uh, USIA films. So it, work, all that work for the government sort of led to interesting new things because um, after working with Bernstein, a lot of musicians would come to me, like Isaac uh, Stern, Yo-Yo Ma, Midori. Um, oh, we, so that's where you yeah, sort of Yeah, that's bridged. how I sort of got typecast. Okay. Yeah, so you acquired oh, you got typecast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I... Um, it's not typecast. And then we made films on your great... Fighting you your know, metier, in a way. Great artists of the past, yeah. like uh, Arthur Rubinstein, the pianist, Tuscanini, Caruso. I love the Caruso yeah. film, by the way. Um, and I, the, um, I always miss, like, pronounce his name. The, the Prodigy... Um, was it, is it um, oh, Heifetz? Yasha Heifetz? Heifetz, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm pronouncing it correctly today. <laughs> yeah. I watched that film probably a hundred times. It oh. was just playing nonstop oh. all day long for oh. two weeks. Oh, I'm glad to know I have a fan out there. <laughs> oh, I'm, a, I'm one of your biggest fans. <laughs> but that Bernstein project, um, while working with him, was always something, you know, that was kind of fascinating because he was quite a character. Um, I, I, I did then go into years and years of just working with musicians or on projects about um, musicians, either current or you know famous names uh, from the past. Um, so I think that all, as you were saying earlier, you know, one thing sort of leads to another, and uh, and th this was all still. It's a great time still... to all these musicians too. I mean, yeah, you know, the yeah. golden age. And... So this was all part of uh, the government-funded films, the the Bernstein. The Bernstein was, yeah. Okay, and and you did mention that once Nixon became president, all those projects. Yeah, unfortunately, USIA um, folded up after Nixon, and it became um, ICA, International Communication Agency. They had to change all their letterheads and stationery and contracts, and then that only lasted a few years. And then the government stopped making uh, propaganda films for use overseas. The, for example, the Bernstein film was made because the government felt that in Europe and Asia, there was a thinking that we didn't have culture here. We knew how to make automobiles. We built great skyscrapers. America was a place of great scientific advancement, but that we had no culture. So the government thought that um, we needed to make films to show that we had a real cultural heritage here. So they picked people as subjects like Leonard Bernstein, who was very patriotic and agreed to do it because he wanted to do something for the country. So these subjects were accessible. I've heard a lot of these uh, abstract expressionist painters also got oh, yeah. their start from these from these films as well. The same thing, yeah, this idea of the government you know, promoting the, the other our culture. Yeah, the art side of that is WPA, uh, right. which which hired. Um, Diego Rivera. Yeah, some Rivera. great American artists. Um, trying to think of who, who's who. Pollock, I think. Yeah, Pollock was uh, was paid by all. All the abstract expressionists yeah. were paid by um, WPA to to do their work to do murals oh, all I over America. But um, so that's that's really why um, 
you know, the well, government was, was way ahead of its time then to try to make sure America had a, a good image overseas. Look at what we have today. We have the most negative image you could possibly have because that's one of the reasons. We, we dropped the whole idea of propaganda. The Chinese do propaganda. What do you think? That's what TikTok is. TikTok is Chinese propaganda. So we, we don't have that anymore, and I think the country kind of um, in its overall foreign relationships has really suffered from that. So do you in some way think that Hollywood took over this entire propaganda and film industry because... Um, no, you know, Hollywood came into the picture um, because they made entertainment. It wasn't the same thing at all. It wasn't propaganda. And you never really delved into the Hollywood scripted you know, I think every filmmaker always had, and you always had in your back pod, pocket some sort of project or screenplay or something that you would hope you could go out to Hollywood to do. Just before you started this interview, I was talking to Fritz about, because he spent so much time in Hollywood as an actor, um, I would go out there almost at one, for a while, almost once a week, um, because of different projects, different meetings, uh, different projects I was pitching. Um, I had optioned some books that I thought would be good movies. Um, one of the books I optioned, no one was interested in, and I got a call from Sidney Pollack's office. And when we were talking, you didn't know, she didn't know who Sidney Pollack was, but he was probably the most important producer out there. Um, like and, and one of the most <laughs> famous actors out, out there. Um, he made Don't Shoot Horses. Uh, they, they shoot, what is it? They Don't Shoot Horses. They Don't Shoot Horses. Yeah. And many other famous films. But at any rate, Pollock was interested in the same book that I had optioned for some reason. I don't know how he heard about it. So his office called me up and said, We understand you have the option to this book. Come out to LA and meet with Sydney. That was another example of that. There were dozens of meetings, dozens of trips to LA. And of course, the film never got made because mm -hmm. in Hollywood, it's very hard to get something off the ground if you're not there every day, if you're not part of every dinner, every breakfast, every meeting. If your office is in New York and you're flying out to LA once a week or once a month, you're not part of the scene that puts together uh, the mechanics of these projects. And no matter how good your project is, you might have it packaged with the best possible actors uh, and you might have a great executive producer like Sidney Pollack, it still doesn't work unless you're there you know, pushing it. You've got to be part of that community. And I was born in, in New York, loved New York. I never wanted to pick up my family and move to a kooky place like Los Angeles to live. Um, I can't uh, picture you in Hollywood either, or Vietnam. No, just, okay. I, I picture you, you know, you have an Ivy League education, yeah. and, and, and I love what you've done with your body of work. Um, just in case Fritz doesn't know, um, Peter has made over a hundred films. I saw. You saw. <laughs> I did see. And one of my favorite is "Who Gets to Call It Art." Let's talk okay. about that. Yeah. Well, I th um, I th always was interested. This goes back to Yale graphics in a way. I was always interested um, being in school in New Haven in the art department in what was going on in downtown New York at the time. This was like the late '60s, and uh, with pop art on the move and a very vibrant downtown art scene. I was only an hour and a half away. I had a, I actually had a motorcycle at the time. I had a, what was it? I had a BMW 650. So I enjoyed riding this motorcycle into Manhattan and back whenever I could. And I began to hang out downtown. I met people like Jim Dine um, and other people who were important artists at the time. 
So always, from the time I was in college, I always thought there was something exciting happening in the art world in downtown New York from the 60s on. But um, over the years, I could never really figure out um, how to make a film about that. And then many years later, somebody came to my office and told me about Henry Geltzahler. This was, I think, an aunt of his who was a, a psychiatrist, Barbara. And she said, our family is thinking of, um, because Henry was a curator at the Met, people don't even know what a curator is or what a curator does. He was sort of a rem remote behind the scenes character. And um, she said, our family is thinking about writing, having a book written about Henry Geltzahler. Do you know anybody who can do that kind of thing? And I thought about it and I said, you know, it's such a visual story. Here's the curator who discovered Andy Warhol, who um, discovered so many of the important um, pop artists at the time uh, because he just would go downtown and hang around in their studios and his other life was was a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art which was only showing old-fashioned stuff there was no he was know, only the curator at the Met <laughs> yeah but you know there were quite a few of them there but he was the one in uh, in charge of contemporary American art which was a real no-no at the Met you could find it at, at, the, at MoMA but not at the Met the Met is dead art people who are dead not living artists. So, and that um, struggled to counteract that. Yeah. So Henry was the one who brought all of this new work to the august, huge galleries at the Met, which much, was much more prestige for the artist than being at MoMA or, one of the, or the Jewish Museum or one of the museums that already had contemporary art. So I thought to myself, why, write a why have them write a book on Henry Geltzahler? It makes a great film that's so visual with all the artists that he visited and discovered. So I talked them into that. Uh, they raised the money from different foundation, arts foundations like uh, Dorothy Lichtenstein and Matisse Foundation. And we made this film called Who Gets to Call It Art? The answer to that question is Henry gets to call it art because he had the rare thing that you don't really find today too often, which was a, a set of eyes that could tell ahead of time whether a painting was going to be valuable or not. Today, nobody knows that. You know, they, they take a wild guess and the market decides it, not the quality of the painting or anything. So Henry, as I said, discovered Andy Warhol um, and quite a few, quite a few of the other uh, pop artists. Um, and it turned out to be quite an interesting film. We, we looked at the downtown art world of the 60s with a kind of sense of humor. It's got some really great, you know, music of the time, from the 60s uh, in, in it. Um, you know, the Rolling Stones and everybody else who was doing work at that point. Um, and uh, it got to be quite a well-known film. Well, and, and that art lends itself to, it's, yeah. to, it's so cinematic to be able to bring it to the audience. Yeah, that's why I said don't write a book yeah. where you have a few illustrations. This, this could yeah. be a really colorful, fast-paced, funny documentary about pop art and how Henry found, discovered pop art. Did you get a chance to meet Henry? No, I didn't. Oh. He, died, he died in... Uh, 86, somewhere in 86 or so. I didn't work on this project till oh, but you, 2004. But you were in that downtown the, art scene. You oh yeah, no, I never, he was much more of a behind the scenes character. He okay. wasn't, um, he hung out in Warhol's studio a lot in the factory. And I did go there once or twice, but I don't remember ever. I could have, you know, I could have seen him, but not knowing. Uh, not a lot knowing of people went in and out of there. Yeah. I, I love how in the beginning of the film, he, he meets Ivan Karp and they ask him, what's your name? And he goes, 
Henry Gallitzer, and and they're like, what, Henry, what? And he goes, just call me Henry. Just call me Henry. That's I know. Henry. I think that's the poster we made. He's sitting on a big pile of pop art, like garbage, a huge pile of pop art, and you can see all the different, you know, work underneath him. And on the top, it just says Henry, because you know, he he was on the top of the uh, top of the art world. And the important thing about that film was, uh, which is very very unusual for a documentary, um, in in two thousand six, it was one of the top ten films on Time Magazine's cover, and that was the year of Star Wars, um, Little Miss, what was that other some some other pop film at the time. Um, and number four was who gets to call it art. Nobody could believe that a documentary was in the top I, ten. I think that should be the number one art film in the art world because I've been yeah. telling every single person yeah. to watch this film and they are just so obsessed and intrigued, especially yeah. the art dealers. Yeah. Well, you know, it is when people make <laughs> their top ten lists of art films, it's usually on, on those uh, lists. There, there are quite a few other really good films about the art world. The, the ones that are bad... Um, are the ones about artists and they try to show the process of art like there's some films on on Richter for example and all you see is now Richter is taking the color and putting it on his spatula now you can see him stretch it over the canvas and now he's blending orange and nobody cares about that that you know right. not a, it's not a story no I love the part you need to see the, the context really yeah. and the other the, people that was you don't want to know how painters right. paint you want to know uh, the story live. What they were doing and yeah. well, and I, to see and how it arrives, really. Yeah. That's what moral genius. I, I love how um, uh, mm -hmm. John Chamberlain. It's John Chamberlain yeah. who talks about artists and being on television and how awkward they are. And Andy Warhol's answer was always a yes or a no, and yeah. I never knew that until I watched this film. Yeah. Well, all artists in general are not articulate. You know, when they go on talk shows. Um, it's funny how they don't hardly ever uh, talk about anything. Salvador Dali was like that. And a friend of mine, who actually uh, uh, a very close friend who was a high school classmate who just died, Edward R. Pressman, the producer, who made Wall Street and uh, all the Arnold Schwarzenegger films. He just has a new film coming out next month, uh, or is in, coming out in September on Dali, called Dali Land, which oh. should be really interesting. You know, those are the kind of films that are really... Um, tell you about art and the art world and artists, not, not the process uh, kind of documentaries that, that are out there now. And, and you are currently um, about to premiere a film, but we'll get back to that towards the end of yeah. this interview. Let's talk about your architecture films and, we'll, and what inspired you to make the Eero Saarinen film. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because your questions always still bring me back to the government, to working for the U.S. government back in the 70s and 80s. Um, the group of producers who did Reflections, for which we did the Bernstein film in 1977, when that series ended, after they had done all these famous Americans, uh, the two producers of that um, retired from USIA and formed their own company, um, to make another series called First Person Singular. And since I had done work for them when they were at USIA, they hired me to do one of their films in that series, which was on I.M. Pei, the uh, Chinese architect. And um, that was a great project for me because it had been many years since I left architecture school. Always loved architecture, but never had anything to do with it, you know, after 
after leaving school in the first few, just a couple of years of working in architecture in these big offices. Um, but the chance to work on a project with I.M. Pei, to meet him, to, to see all of his work, um, and the idea of this series was similar to Reflections. It was letting the subject tell you his or her own story, first person singular. Um, so we went with Pei to almost all of his buildings, the, the, the Pyramid in the Louvre, um, the Bank of China in Hong Kong, um, many, many other uh, projects of his throughout America and Europe and Asia. Um, and so I got to know Pei pretty well. This was done when he was 80 years old for his uh, 80th, uh, 80th anniversary. And that um, opened the door to a whole new field of not just um, you know, music and art, but uh, architecture as well. And um, you know, those are the projects that, that really all kind of sprung from that same source of um, government-financed um, filmmaking. Which again probably promoted architecture as, a, as a, something to be interested in, which has been, which is great, which is a fantastic uh, cultural. Yeah. I mean, and, architecture and is essentially, it, it's a sculpture, but it's a giant sculpture and it's a monument. Yeah. Well, especially in right? the case of a story like I Am Pei, yeah. um, you know, most architects have a signature and everything looks the same. You know, Frank Gehry, every building is the same. You know it's a Frank Gehry building, so why keep doing them if it's always the same idea? Uh, Hadid, the woman who died, um, every Hadid building looks exactly the same. So, you know, there's really no artistic advancement, and these people get onto a certain style. That's what they're commissioned for, and that's what they're expected to do. Same thing happens in the art world. You know, Pollock was expected to do drip paintings. Lichtenstein was expected to do comic books. Warhol was expected to do his style. Well, again, um, you're lucky if you find a niche in a sense. Yeah. Like, as you and said. It's, it's, I guess yeah. it's human nature. If you find a niche and you're getting famous and you're making money, why change anything? I.M. Pei was, was um, and Saarinen, who we also made a film on later, they're, um, they're the two... Uh, you okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The... Um, She's fiddling with a microphone, so I thought maybe the recording stopped, but we're still going here. The battery just <laughs> kind of went off in um, one of my recorders. Um, so I think that um, the idea that um, an architect doing something new each time was really fascinating, and I am Pace a perfect perfect example of that. The um, you know the uh, the art museum in Washington D.C., which is this huge white monolithic building that comes to a, almost a razor razor edge point at one corner. Is completely different than the all glass and and metal pyramid in the Louvre, and that's all different than his um, Bank of China, which is a huge, you know, sixty-story high sculptural uh, piece of structure. So, working with architects like I M Pei and Saren and about Saren and later um, was fascinating because these are the real artists. You know, if every project creates a different form because the program is different in that way, then you know that there's some real art art behind it, some real innovation, some real imagination. And with the Eero um, film, I, you know, can you describe and talk about the, the equipment? And because this is when you, start mo you started moving into or transitioning yeah. into the digital electronics. Yeah, the film on Eero Saarinen. Yes. Yeah, that, that was called um, The Architect Who Saw the Future, which is relatively recent. We did that a few years ago. Um, it's kind of important for three reasons, that film, in my, 
in my career because um, number one, as you just said, there's certain certain technical innovations that we could take advantage of at that time. Um, the film was shot in uh, 6K, which is right now we're at kind of finally have gotten to 4K. But we, the cameraman on that, which I'm going to who, who I will talk about in a minute, wanted everything to be a lasting archive of mm -hmm. Saarinen's work way into the future, like 50 years from now, 4K is going to be an antiquated system. So he was thinking ahead, there were actually 6K cameras. Today we have 8K cameras in Japan. So this thing is getting to, um, to be highly, you know, highly technical. But um, because the cameras were large 6K cameras on Saren and Shoot, we were the first ones to really do that kind of photography using drones. Up until the time we did the Saarinen film, drones were could shoot, but there were small cameras, and they put like um, you know very small. They put very small um, cameras like GoPros onto a consumer drone, and you could fly around a building. Big deal. But when you're shooting 6K or even 4K, the cameras are big. They're heavy. You need um, an octocopter drone. You need something that almost looks like a small helicopter. And that is a real technology that had not been used in movies before we did it on the Saarinen film. Uh, today, Hollywood is used, I can see in a lot of feature films, you look at Batman and you look at Superman movies, uh, there, there are drone shots, but we were doing that before those films. And then there's also a lighting effect that's, that's very unique uh, when you're using this equipment. Well, it's not so much lighting as, as a choice of lenses. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, okay. the cameraman was, um, uh, was uh, Eric Saarinen, who was the son of Aero Saarinen. And um, he felt that um, in order to shoot his father's work, and I totally agreed with him, that architecture can't be looked at as an abstract, wide-angle thing like you might do in a painting. You have to show architecture the way you experience it with your eyes. So that you have to match a, a, a cinema shot with the way your eyes perceive the same proportions, uh, which means you have to choose the right lens to match what your eyeball sees, not a, a distortion of that, like the long end of a, a, the flat end of a long lens or the wide, very, you know, you see now, you see architecture shot with these super wide fish, you know, fishbowl lenses. Um, what, what, one thing that set back architecture photography for years was this fancy, still photography that companies like Ezra Stoller did. They would go out, put, use, use red filters to make the sky black and the clouds white and wide angle. And it was not, you saw these beautiful buildings, but it was nothing to do with what the building really looked like. So if you ever visited those buildings- Because you couldn't move through it really yeah, is the point. Right, it's exactly. If you, so if you actually go to visit the actual building, you would say, that doesn't look like what I saw in pictures at all. This has a completely different feeling to it because the Ezra Stoller pictures uh, distorted architecture. So Eric Saarinen wanted to show architecture the way we see it. And therefore he Which had, uh, with, when we were traveling, we would always travel with his box. He had a box of 10 prime lenses in it. And he would match that lens to each shot so that the actual photograph that we were taking uh, the cinema in cinema was the way you would experience going through it. So moving through the building with drones or just walking through the building would give the viewer of the film on Aerosarinen the same feeling in each one of his buildings as if you were actually there. And that was very rare. You didn't find that in architectural uh, photography um, at all. 
Um, and the, you know, the last thing I want to point out about the Saarinen film is all these documentaries um, have to have a story. You can't just do a, a film about an architect and say, here's building one, here's building two, here's building three, here's building four. It would be boring. You can't do that about an artist. You just can't show the artist's paintings and talk about each painting because the audience doesn't know where they are. You, you can't do that in like a linear way because there's some really stupid film called Joe Papp and Nine Acts. Who's going to want to watch Nine Acts if you know you're working one? Oh my God, I got to wait for number four. Now I got to wait for number five. It it makes the thing um, incredibly uh, boring and and unending. And that the so, thing I love about your films is each one is shot in a different um, style and manner, especially in the way that you document the subject. So with the Eero film, you know his son is actually in the film, yeah. and there's this emotional connection to yeah, that, the that, work and, and the architect and this, this entire backstory that's, that's very yeah. sad. Well, I think that's, Reen, I think you're touching on the key thing when you say story. Now, these films have to have like a story and they can't, just can't be a survey or a linear depiction of what the subject matter is. So the Saarinen film, as you said, is a really good example of that because I, um, I knew that Eero Saarinen had a son who was a cinematographer. He had done a lot of Hollywood movies, okay? And so I thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we were going to shoot all this architecture, if we could hire the son to shoot his father's work? So for about a year, I tried to contact Eric Saarinen, who was a very busy cameraman in uh, director of photography in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And he finally wrote back and saying, Peter, I don't, want to, I don't want to have anything to do with your film about my father because I hate my father, hated my father when I was growing up. And I have ignored, his, ignored the name. I'm embarrassed to have the name Saren and I don't want to have anything to do with this. So I said, oh my God, there's a story here, right? We've got yeah. to find out why he's yeah. talking like that. And it turns out, you know, when Eero Saarinen uh, left his first wife and his son Eric and, and um, daughter Susie uh, uh, and just disappeared, just left the family and ran off with a, a beautiful um, reporter, Eileen Saarinen, um, Eric was bitter about that from the time he was a seven-year-old boy. Mm -hmm his whole life. So here am I now calling up saying, we're making a film about your father, who's one of the world's great architects, do you want to come and shoot it? So of course he said, no, I have nothing to do with this. I finally, after a lot of long emails, and he wrote me back very in a very moving way, I still have some of his emails, long emails about the problems he had with his father growing up. And I finally convinced him that that's the story, that, that's, that's the film we want to make. So not only did we, I finally convinced him to shoot the film, he became the subject of the film because I was filming him while he was filming his father and we traveled all over the country to all the Saarinen buildings and as he did that, he sort of came to terms and understood who his father really was as an architect and began to admire who his father was. And in a way, um, at the, a great at the end, too. it's a redemption you know, of all of his thoughts. At the end of the film he says, you know, I really forgive him now for what he did because I realized he was such a great artist. So that, that's the story of the Saarinen film, but in every film you do have to find the story like that. You know, we talked about the Clyburn competition, it's the same. Louis Constant made a great film, uh, Yeah, Architects. you know, it's, it's similar, and actually when I started the Saarinen film I knew we would be compared to to um, My Architect. My Architect, and they're both very, very good films for that reason. There are more about the personal story and the relationship, family relationships, than the buildings. People don't want to know about architecture. They don't want to. They don't care what 
is, is that steel or is that wood, is that glass, you know, is it marble? People don't care about that stuff. They care about the human story in each project. So whether it's about a musician, if you're doing a film about a musician, people don't care about the notes and the score and how, how come the music has is on this type particular beat or, you know. And the artist can't really explain that anyway, which is, I yeah. think, to your point earlier, that's yeah. it's foolish to try to go down that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and peop even if you did go down that path, people don't care. People, uh, you right, know, people as you, you and the artist would probably just tell you he was lucky, yeah. kind of fortuitous yeah. to, be, to find a way to be and doing right, this. Right, it's like me watching who gets to call it art, and my, my favorite clip is Andy Warhol saying yes, no, yeah. yes. No, and, and that I tell everybody this, and they all want to see the film, and they've actually gone and watched the oh, film. Oh, that's good. So that's why I'm seeing some, a spike in, uh, in our uh, um, Vimeo On Demand page. Oh, it, you. it must be me. <laughs> I've been sending the I, link I probably, to everyone. I probably owe you some money because we made money from that. Did you? Yeah, you probably get 50% of that, right? Uh, or, you know, something else. But, you know, but... you mentioned, Rena, the key word. You said everything has a backstory. That, that's what... That's what documentaries are all about. If there's no story, there's no audience interest. So you can't do a documentary that's like a historical, like all this stuff that's on uh, History Channel, you know, it's just sort of ge uh, geography and background right. and science. No, it's boring. No, it's very boring because there's no story. Now, when a filmmaker locks on to some sort of real human interest story, then it's a good documentary. It doesn't matter whether the subject matter is architecture or art or music or AIDS, or poverty, or civil rights, or racism, whatever it might be, as long as there's a human story behind the documentary, it'll work. And that's the same as what happens in Hollywood. People are making stories. So I don't even like to use the word documentary anymore because it sets these films apart when they're really all the same in terms of how do you tell a story. It's better I to say like non-fiction, non say uh, non-fiction, right. non-fiction cinema. When yeah. I, when I, um, speak of you to, to other people, and they're mainly in the art world, I, I just tell everyone you, you make art films, because that's essentially what they are. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Films yeah, about sure. art. Speaking of art films and um, subjects and personalities and, and humans, let's talk about Larry Rivers. Okay, the bad well, boy of the art world. Bad boy of the art world is another one of these projects that I had my eye on for many years before actually making it. As a matter of fact, the Larry Rivers project goes back to where we started this whole talk about me at, at Yale. It's part of that Joe Levine um, filmmaking uh, grant. There was a course that was set up called Writing for the Camera that was taught by a brilliant filmmaker, Michael Romer, who's now in his 90s. Um, but he, was, he made Nothing But a Man, which was the first movie where two black actors, uh, Abby Lincoln and Ivan Dixon, actually kissed on camera. It was the first time oh. in, in Hollywood that two black people ever kissed, which right, was and groundbreaking. what year is this? Uh, 1962 or wow. something like that. That, that, that that's, yeah. that's a really... Michael Romer, and then Michael Romer <laughs> made a very good comedy called um, uh, The Plot Against Harry or something like that. At any rate, Michael was teaching this course at Yale called Writing for the Camera, and one of, the, one of my fellow, it was a fellowship that Joe Levine paid everybody a stipend of $3,000 to take this uh, course, uh, in, uh, again, in that year after graduation. And um, one of my classmates was Arnold Weinstein, 
who was a playwright. Arnold wrote uh, Dynamite Tonight, which was a, a famous uh, early 60s off-Broadway musical, and plus other, other things. So Arnold Weinstein got to be a friend, and then I, this was like 19, mid, mid-1970s. Then I didn't hear from him again for 20 years, and I get a call, and he goes, Peter, this is your friend from Yale, Arnold Weinstein. I'm sitting in a room with the painter, Larry Rivers, and I'm helping him write his autobiography. And the more we get into it, the more I realize this is a crazy documentary to make because Larry was a crazy person, broke all the boundaries uh, of how we normally live our lives. Um, all the taboos were broken by him. And you better, you should come out here and, and meet him and see what, what this book is all about. I didn't pay too much attention to that until the book came out um, that Arnold and Larry wrote. Um, Called what what did I do? Which is a great, one of the great art books of all time. You should read that. What did I do? Which is the autobiography of uh, Larry Rivers. Um, and then um, so finally, when I read the book, I, I thought, well, he was right. That makes a really great documentary. Now this is mid '90s. Um, again, nothing really happened on this. Um, I did meet Larry Rivers a few times in galleries or whatever. What was he like? Sorry to like I hardly kind of... remember him in person because I only met him once or twice. Okay. He's a tall, tall, good-looking guy, big, big pointed nose. He was nose. very good-looking, I yeah, think. Yeah, some, was... you know, it's interesting. Some women would think he was good-looking and some women wouldn't because he was very different-looking. Well, when he was younger and when he wore yeah. those suits and was very clean-looking, yeah, he was yeah. good-looking, but good, as... Good, yeah, good figure, tall, thin. Right. As he became more and more... Perverse, yeah, I, I, and drugs. I guess, or he or, was a major druggie, and you know, and drugs oh. seem to do that to people's personal features. Their their faces sort of droop yeah. down, and they they start to look ugly if they're really addicts. But uh, you know, aside from all that, um, about all these years went by, and then I had met Larry a few times, and then I guess um, when this goes back to Who Gets to Call It Art, we premiered Who Gets to Call It Art in the Hamptons Film Festival, which was ideal for that film because. Henry Geltzahler lived in the Hamptons. In Southampton, there's a bench with a plaque on it saying Henry Geltzahler sat in this bench and oh, he's really? a famous character You're out there. You're gonna have to show me where that so, bench so, is. Yeah, so I we, have to sit on that bench. So we, um, you'll have to take a picture of you in the plaque. Yes. But, um, so when we premiered the, the, the Henry Geltzahler film at the Hamptons Film Festival, which got great press, um, you know, there are all these Hollywood films there, and we got more press than anything, any other film in, in the Hamptons Film Festival because he was a local guy and fame, Henry Geltzahler was well known there. Um, I remember that um, Stallone, the actor, you know, the guy from Rocky, yeah, yeah. Had, had a new I, film I at the same festival. <laughs> and I was at some reception or some party, and we're drinking, and Sylvester Stallone comes up, and he says, Peter Rosen, how come your documentary is getting more press than my new film? You know, he's all pissed off at that. Because but, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> because but, it's good. But at any rate, well, so... Well, just because Stallone takes his art seriously, which he does, actually. But, um, so, so at that festival, a guy came up to me and said, uh, Peter, I like that film you made on Henry Geltzahler. I'm the president of the Larry Rivers Foundation out here in, in uh, Bridgehampton, and we should talk about making a film about Larry. So this is now about 19, oh, I don't know, no, about, about 2000, somewhere in there, 2005, 2003. So this project, which we're now just finishing, if you think about it, started at Yale when I talked to, first met Armand Weinstein in 1973. So what are we talking about now? 50, that's 50 years ago 
you know, the idea for a film on Larry Rivers sort of was born, followed through at the Hamptons Film Festival when the president of the foundation, a very brilliant painter in his own right, um, you know, David Joel is his name, came up to me and said, let's make a film. So I began to work with the foundation on this film about 10 or 12 years ago. And then as it developed, a lot of things happened along the way. Number one, one morning we open up the New York Times and Vanity Fair magazine and see these huge articles about Larry Rivers accused of molesting his two daughters. So all of a sudden this project changed and I went out to the offices where David Joel was and that next morning he was really upset that he felt that by the daughters making this claim that they were molested by him, that they had basically ruined the legacy of Larry Rivers. You don't do that. No matter how much you push boundaries as an artist, as a writer, whatever, you don't molest your daughters. It turns out he never really molested them sexually or had any physical contact with them, but when they were young, he painted them in very suggestive poses, naked, he filmed them naked, um, and they are being asked to, to talk about their breasts growing, their bodies developing, their first sexual feelings, and it's sort of an invasion of privacy of your daughters. You have daughters. I have daughters. I have yeah. a daughter. I would never think of talking no. to my daughter on that yeah. subject. I never even talked to my daughter about anything to do with sex. It would be embarrassing, you know. Let, let, let the teachers do that or something. But Larry Rivers was so outrageous and so out there, he felt there were no boundaries about this kind of thing. So the project, we were about halfway doing this film when this happened. It was a cover story on Vanity Fair, um, and the New York Times, two days in a row, wrote a front page piece about Larry Rivers and the daughters. And I said to myself, that turns the corner on this project a little bit. It's not just about an artist who was doing new things and doing outrageous things and pushing those boundaries. Now it becomes a real family human story. So we interviewed one of the daughters, we interviewed Larry's wife when all this was happening, and we interviewed a lot of people in the art world about this whole theme of, are artists people who have the right to transcend the normal behavior that the rest of us have to live within these boundaries? Or are artists people who are put on this earth for a special reason to express whatever they want and we can't tell them what to do and what not to do and what's off limits and what not is off limits and that's sort of what this film is all about and it's just about finished now and it's coming out I think at a very interesting time as a matter of fact Lena and I are going to have a meeting coming up next week with a PR firm that's interested in trying to present this idea to the public I think they will they will present it in the right manner to it, the right people. Yeah. Um, well, it's very sensitive yeah. because we're in the middle of this cancel culture world. That's right. Well, and he's, Larry he's Rivers not would have been anymore. So I know, can but he really still, he would have been the yeah. first one to be canceled. <laughs> or the daughter. I guess it depends on if yeah. the daughters have seen if yeah. the project has a has a has yeah. a way of seeing well, through. Well, and, and the other thing is, we were talking about story earlier. This this project with Larry has the same redemptive. Uh, story that there's a controversy about what happened but we found out at the end of this film as I was talking to one of the daughters that when he died when he was dying on his deathbed the whole family came together and they all sort of forgave him because they realized how much family meant to him his last painting which is featured in this documentary 
is of the whole family together sitting on a porch and it's a beautiful portrait and the daughter looks at it and says you know I realized that that was really the most important thing in his life was family and I forgive him for what he did so and there's so there's again that story of redemption is the same as in in the film you know on uh, Saren and, uh, Saren and Son it's on the f same as the film that you know we made about the blind um, pianist um, Nobuyuki Tsuji. Which is one of my favorite yeah, films. You, um, you've made several films. Winning the Clyburn after being born blind um, and being able to achieve that kind yeah, of limit. And which yeah. says, says something about pushing boundaries really in itself. Yeah, so I think that's a, prodigy. a fascinating And this is what makes great documentaries mm -hmm. when at the end there is that final act um, of, of redemption. Um, so with Larry Rivers, I think it's going to be an important film. Um, Rena has seen it, only a few other people, because it is very sensitive. When I, was, when I was making it, I was getting calls from like feminist groups who heard about this film. I got a call from a lawyer one day saying, I represent an important feminist. What, what can we do to have you not make this film? Really? Yeah. I, I actually, got, I get different feedback than what you just said. A lot of the women and feminists and lesbians can't wait to see the film, they actually want to see, <laughs> yeah. you know, how bad it used to be, you know, yeah. because they remember. Well, that's, that's really important because that might be why the film could be successful in today. today. Now, we could have finished this film five years ago um, or three years ago. Then the pen, we didn't do anything during the pandemic. People weren't available for interviews and things like that. So we lost two years there. But I'm really glad that it's coming out now as opposed to when we could have finished it four or five years ago. Because now we're kind of turned a corner on all of this. I think people are a little more understanding and see a bigger picture about relationships between men and women, and and, right. and how and how the feminist movement may have been a little too fast, too soon for some people. Um, you know, and I, I think the film will, will really make an important. But I, I also want to point out that a lot of feminists that I personally know. I think want to support the film because it supports their cause. It's sort of like it juxtaposes what they have been fighting for, and they and they have they are eager to see it. And you know, I tell them I've watched it. Well, we see interviewed it. a well, at least the, 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 the conversation should be out there. It's like you said, if you can, yeah. if you cancel yeah. the conversation, then there's no chance to. Well, this is definitely about the conversation, or, but through yeah. the work of an artist who always put women on pedestals, sort of like pinup. Pictures, right. but he was a great artist. Yeah. Which is well, that's is that's the underlying the, the underlying importance of it is yeah. Larry Rivers, Rauschenberg, and Jasper Johns were probably the three most important American artists because no they broke away from the abstract expression. Mm -hmm. American art was all European based. It was all de Kooning and Pollock and European based artists. I mean, um, Larry was just a very open and loud Picasso. That's the way I kind of yeah. look at him. Yeah. And have an artist been painting nude children for since the beginning oh, of time? Yeah. Really? Sure. Right. If you try to cancel that, if you try to cancel that, that's... well, let's just cancel all the nude yeah, models yeah. everywhere. Get rid of every Fragonard and then or, or you know some great photographers like Maple. Right. Let's just like, like what if, whitewash all the all the paintings at the Met. What about Maplethorpe? Yeah. You know, they're outrageous right. pictures of the of, of right. penises, erect penises, and. Um, who else? There are many artists who've done much more outrageous work than Larry. Or all the ceilings at the Vatican. 
<laughs> yes, all, the, all, the, yeah. all the babies. That well, we are... show a lot of that in the film. Okay. Um, you know, there's there's the Corbet's uh, Origins of the World, which is just a, a big it oil painting. Look, of... it doesn't invalidate the daughters either. It's like you said, yeah. there's a story that there's a story there. Yeah, and that's well. So, I, but I think what I was going to open the film, we had a different opening at one point. It was going to be what I told you about this phone call. It's going to be me sitting at a desk in my office. The phone rings. I pick it up, and you hear this voice saying. I represent Gloria Steinem. Uh, what can you do to not make this film, Peter Rosen? And, oh, it's glorious. No, no, I'm oh, just okay, saying that's okay. how we would do the opening of the film. But then I figured that was sort of fake, so we didn't want to. So I, I have sent the link uh, and told a lot of people in the art world about who gets to call it art. And I've mentioned Larry Rivers, and they're all waiting for the premiere. Just to let you know. Well, you know what we yeah. should do? Um, you could really help me with this. We have to figure out, I've been trying to premiere it in the Hamptons because Larry lived out there. He was like Henry Geltzahler, one of the real art luminaries in the Hamptons. But I was saying before about being an important artist, there were only three people who broke away from abstract expressionism, which was the only American art. Um, color field painting, abstract expressionism, Pollock. And they began to put actual literal real images on canvas. That that was a huge turning point in American art, and only three. Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, and and, and and Rivers. They were the only three artists during this time of abstract. Especially, it was real heresy to do what they were doing. To do something that wasn't um, abstract was really heretic. I mean, you, you were looked at like an amateur or an American Indian or something like that if you did a realistic kind of uh, painting. Well, so, I I can't wait to get people's because I have luckily been able to get a, a director's cut, you know, um, preview of the Larry Sounds Rivers. fascinating. I want to see it too. Yeah. No, um, we could send you, send, send him the link. Sure. You, you're special. Yeah. You're part of this you know, just We don't want to kind of haphazardly get this out there. Now, the problem in the Hamptons is we, we know some key people who run Guildhall, who run the Parish Art Museum, and we have inquired about whether they want to show it and they're all kind of getting cold feet. They say, oh my God, we love this film, but can we really show it to our highbrow audience out here in the Hamptons? Yeah, I think so. I think they need to see, they, yeah, but they want to see it, to, especially if it's made by you. They're hesitant to do it. They're hesitant to do I it. I mean, you you made the number four Time Magazine um, film that Sylvester Stallone came up to you, right? And, and said, why is your film more important than mine? Why not? Who would not want to see another art film that was made by you? And, and this movie in particular, um, all these women, I'm telling you, there's a gang of women that I know yeah. that are artists and that are female, that are feminists who really want to see it. We interviewed some uh, feminist artists for the film who were very tough on Larry Rivers in the film. So we do have a cross-section of opinions about him. You know, I had a rough cut screening without that and some, some women who saw it said, we think you need to add a feminist perspective on who he was. So I went went to some artists who were. Who... I think we should do a screening and just only invite women and see their reaction. Well, just goes to show that yeah. you know you the, do the, that. The okay, okay I'll do it. You know, I'll, really I'll do it. The film community. You do that. I'm going to yeah. sit incognito in the back row with my okay. sunglasses on. The, the film community really is is the probably the the the, the most terrified people because they're the yeah, ones who right. really yeah. get subject subjected yeah. to the canceling well, and this and that. I can't wait to get the reaction and thank you so much for for letting me interview you. It was really a privilege. Well, it was fun. I'm glad we talked. Yeah, and thank you for letting us. Fabulous conversation. Have a great host. So we're gonna wrap this up, and I will see you very soon. <laughs>